welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight we're talking about men's dream streams with Dr. Dean Elterman and a new device for stress urinary incontinence. Also going to be talking about anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder. And what is your sex life like in this pandemic? Have things changed? Is this an altogether different kind of Valentine's Day for you? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting on this Valentine's Day for you. Thanks for tuning in. Joining me on the line from Toronto is Dr. Dean Elterman. He is a urologist at the University of Toronto, and I invited him to come onto the program tonight to talk about men's stream issues, especially as they age. Good evening, Dr. Elterman. Hi, Maureen. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you so much. Same to you. This is actually something that could could impact uh, a lover's life, um, having issues around their stream, maybe getting up at night, um, maybe being concerned about it. Uh, you know, as, as I've, it's been said, you hang around enough men getting into their 50s and 60s and 70s, they're going to be talking about the dream stream, <laughs> something of yes, yesteryear. Indeed. Yes. So um, tell me what happens to men's urinary stream as they age? Well, uh, you are correct that this can definitely become an issue as men get older. And in fact, it does have a significant uh, impact on couples uh, if men are getting up at night and and worried about their stream and and going out. So essentially, uh, as men age, their prostate will enlarge. And we just have to remember that the prostate is a gland that sits right beneath the bladder and it's shaped like a donut and you essentially pee right through it. And as men get older, this gland, the prostate, grows larger, but as it grows outwardly, it also grows inwardly, and it narrows off that channel, and the result is an obstruction of flow, and men feel a weaker stream. Uh, They feel that they don't empty their bladders very well. Uh, They often have to stand a really long time for it to start, and once it starts, sort of stops and starts and stops and starts, uh, and then it dribbles at the end. And so all of these symptoms... Uh, are consistent with an enlarged prostate. And what what should a man do who is experiencing these symptoms? Because it's my understanding that oftentimes men uh, will will tolerate these symptoms for a protracted period of time. So what should men do, um, especially if they feel like they're not emptying their bladder, because that can lead to urinary tract infections? That's right. So, you know, this is a problem that really shouldn't be ignored. Obviously, it has... Uh, an impact on men's quality of life for now, uh, but it could have uh, later negative impacts such as urinary tract infections. Uh, the bladder can eventually weaken over time. It won't be able to empty. It can go into something called retention. Uh, and so you do want to address it. And you're absolutely correct that, in fact, the majority of men will ignore these symptoms or self-treat, quote-unquote. Uh, and, and that's fine for a time being, uh, but eventually, uh, again, there can be problems, uh, and there are excellent solutions out there. There's a whole range of treatments from medications to new novel treatments all the way to surgeries. And so what are some of those medications that um, uh, might benefit men who are having issues with their stream? 
Yeah, so the, the classic medications, there's two classes of drugs. One are these uh, alpha blockers, and they're prostate relaxers. And it's a tablet that you take every day, and it relaxes the prostate because there's some smooth muscle inside, and it improves flow. The other are these shrinkers. There are five alpha reductase inhibitors, and they actually shrink the prostate very slowly over about a 6 to 12-month period. Uh, it'll take to shrink down the prostate by about 20 to 30%. And they can actually be taken uh, singularly or as a combination. Now, I will make one brief comment. A lot of men come to me um, asking about natural health products, you know, over-the-counter, salt palmetto, or some combination of, you know, Prostamax, Prostasomething. Um, and, and many men will feel a lot better taking these, but the science really shows that a lot of these herbal natural products are are about the same as a placebo. So men will feel better taking them, uh, but it's generally a placebo effect. And there have been very large studies uh, looking at this. I heard somebody say recently that North Americans have the most expensive urine uh, because that's yes. where most of these products will end up um, and, and not necessarily helping people. But people think that because it says natural, it must be better for you than something that has been studied, has gone through clinical trials, and, and we know um, how it works and uh, the adverse events or side effects that you might have from it. So um, if medication doesn't work, would the next uh, treatment option be surgery? Historically, yes. I mean, the main operation that's been done since the 1930s or 40s is something called a transurethral resection of the prostate or a TERP operation. Uh, and this is a, about a one-hour operation done under anesthesia. It's done by pretty much any urologist in the world. And it's sort of been the standard for, you know, as I said, the better part of the last century and even up to now. Um, there are newer options that are available um, in British Columbia, for example, here in Ontario, uh, there's something called a green light laser, which is essentially a laser turf. The advantage being it's done as an outpatient. You don't have to sleep in the hospital. And the recovery is a lot faster. And then over the last couple of years, there's actually been the introduction to Canada of a middle category called minimally invasive surgical treatments, or MISTs. And these include um, something called a Eurolift, which is a prostatic urethral lift. It's like these little sutures that can pin back the loads. And the newest is something called Resume, R-E-Z-U-M, which is a water steam treatment. And these treatments take about five minutes to perform outside of the hospital. Uh, and they sort of bridge that gap between medications uh, and more invasive surgeries. And are they as effective as surgery as the TURP, as the TURP procedure? They're pretty close. I wouldn't put them in the same category. That would be an unfair comparison. They are sort of apples to oranges, but their efficacy is, is pretty close. It definitely approaches that, but uh, far less invasive, lower risks, and a much faster recovery. So that's the trade-off. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love when medicine advances. You know, some men might experience some of those symptoms that we're talking about, um, frequency, maybe a bit of urgency. Can men get overactive bladder and also getting up at night? They can. And so it's really interesting, and it's actually more complicated in men because they can have a combination of prostate-obstructing symptoms, like that slow flow and the incomplete emptying, and on top of that have an overactive bladder where they're going to experience frequent urination, urgency, rushing to the bathroom, and waking up at night. And you have to remember that men may, on their own, develop an overactive bladder. 
but also by having an obstructing and large prostate for many years, it can actually secondarily lead to the development of an overactive bladder. It's very interesting. And we often think that leakage of urine is associated with little old ladies. Um, so the age-old question is, can men leak urine too? They can. You know, in the majority of cases, the prostate almost acts like a buffer. And men can have an overactive bladder, but they're far less likely to leak, say, compared to women who have an overactive bladder, because, again, the prostate's just not there causing a bit of a, a blockage for those little leaks from happening. But eventually there does come a point where a good number of men will develop an overactive bladder with what we call urgency incontinence, so that's leaking with urgency, uh, and, they will, and they will have small leaks or drips. Right. And also men, it's my understanding, will often have leakage of urine, urine after prostate cancer surgery. Um, and, yes. And yes. that can be a, I mean, often men are so happy that their prostate cancer has been cured, but now they have some pretty significant quality of life issues like erectile dysfunction and urinary incontinence. And they think they can tolerate that until they can't, until it lasts for, you know, a year or two or, or three. What can men do about that? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the prostate is a funny thing because we need it earlier in life as part of the reproductive system. But as we get older, men get older, it really becomes problematic. Half of men, by the time they're age 50, are going to have an enlarged prostate. And about one in seven Canadian men will develop prostate cancer. And so prostate's really causing problems. Now, remember that benign prostate enlargement and prostate cancer are unrelated to each other. Um, but when we do develop prostate cancer, we can actually remove the entire prostate gland. Uh, and as you said, some of the side effects of that actual surgery uh, for cancer uh, are the development of stress incontinence and erectile dysfunction. So for stress incontinence, remember that's leaking with coughing, laughing, sneezing, physical exertion. Uh, and that can often be treated with pelvic floor physiotherapy. So actually going to see a registered physiotherapist who has special uh, training in this area. Obviously seeing someone like a nurse continence advisor who can give you some um, other topics of um, treatment. And then there's some newer, uh, less invasive things uh, like that. The new Canadian product called Contino, uh, which is a small urethral insert. Uh, and then after that, of course, we actually have operations, slings and artificial sphincters that we can put in to stop leaking as well. Well, it sounds great because this can be so problematic, as you mentioned, but there are so many treatment options available. Dr. Elterman, thank you so much for joining me this evening and uh, sharing all of your knowledge once again. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I did put a, like a little word out there on the airwaves about a womanizer. And I did get a little text that is uh, from Rob. Thanks, Rob. What are men? Chopped liver? Give away a fleshlight already. You're so right, Rob. And I totally forgot. And so if you want to share your details with us. You can email them to me, nursetalkathotmail.com, directly in confidence, and I will send you a fleshlight because you deserve it. Um, <laughs> you also deserve to have an appointment with the psychiatrist. No, I'm kidding. I deserve that. I need it. Um, 
I joining me on the line is Dr. Koresh Edelati. He is medical director at Elumind Center for Brain Excellence in North Vancouver. And we're going to be talking about an anxiety disorder that a lot of people have, uh, at least a bit of. I, I admit to some. Good evening, Dr. Edelati. Good evening, Maureen. How, How are, are you? Doing? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Happy Valentine's yeah, Day. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry I interrupted your dinner earlier. <laughs> no worries, no worries. <laughs> Okay. Um, uh, now, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's an ang- it's an anxiety disorder that I wanted to speak to you about, um, in part because I think that uh, this is a common anxiety disorder. A lot of people may suffer varying degrees of it. Uh, first of all, can you tell us what obsessive compulsive disorder is, or OCD? So OCD, as you said. Uh stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. The O or the obsessions, uh, generally it's a a recurrent or basically something that's persistent uh, as a thought or uh, some sort of image or an urge. And this person basically um, experiencing these uh, starts to have increased anxiety. And of course, when the anxiety uh, reaches a threshold level, the person tries to suppress them using compulsions or some of these repetitive behaviors. Uh, and uh, oftentimes these are very problematic in a person's life. It affects uh, their job, their job function, their school function, or, or social interactions, basically. Probably the most common symptom or sign that we, that we note with um, obsessive compulsive disorder is obsessively washing one's hands. Um, you know, that, that one is pretty well known in terms of um, OCD, would you say? Yeah, it's one of the most uh, commonly talked about, um, mm-hmm. but there is uh, definitely a few that um, are not very often talked about. Uh, for example, uh, someone having uh, obsessions about harming someone or mm-hmm. um, harming oneself, um, that's one obsession. Um, Things about religiosity, obsessions about religiosity, whether they said the sinful thing or the wrong thing, um, those are obsessions also that trouble people. Um, Symmetry uh, is a common one which we know of. You know, people like to uh, arrange and rearrange stuff because they have obsessions about things that are not being symmetrical or out of order. So there is there's a number of obsessions that uh, are not necessarily just contamination, but you know, with the pandemic, Marina. That's the one that's probably the most talked about uh, because of the COVID-19 and all the um, fears of contamination associated with it. Right. Now, why would somebody um, have obsessions that they uh, might harm somebody? So there, there's a number of uh, risk factors involved in uh, having uh, an obsession in general. Um, you know, sometimes these genes run in the family, so people... Uh, have a loved one with uh, OCD, and then so they uh, they basically uh, get the genes, and also the environment will impact how those genes uh, express into you know the clinical presentation. But in terms of harming somebody, um, it's uh, an obsession. It doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-hmm. Logically, it does not uh, make any sense as to why you know I would be driving my car minding my own business and uh, running somebody over. And it happens quite often when someone uh, doesn't drive the car because they're afraid that they might actually accidentally run somebody over. Right. Uh, so it's quite distressing, to say the least. 
because these are typically people who would never harm anybody. Absolutely. And they know Absolutely. this. They know that this Absolutely. is irrational on some level. It is, it is, it is irrational. Um, and uh, the distress cause is uh, humongous because they, they, they would never do anything to anyone. Um, but uh, nonetheless, they have these intrusive thoughts that they might do something um, either accidentally or intentionally. Um, and it has no basis in reality. Uh, the other thing that's oftentimes not talked about is um, thoughts about harming oneself, like so suicidal thoughts. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult to diagnose because uh, oftentimes people don't know if it's real or if it's an obsession. Right. So, you uh, hear about the suicidal mind. And it, would that qualify as an obsession? Well, it, it, you have to put it in context with what's going on for that person, right? If somebody has a condition like major depressive disorder or uh, some other uh, condition that would uh, make them suicidal, um, it would have to be screened properly because it's very easy to call it an obsession, but it could be a big problem if it's not just an obsession. So uh, a health professional training OCD uh, would be able to tell that. And, and that would be the first step to getting help. That would be um, absolutely the first yeah. Step. We don't have much time left, about 30 seconds, but what, what is generally the treatment for OCD? So the gold standard is a talk therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, very specifically called exposure response prevention. And then, of course, uh, medications that would increase the level of a chemical called serotonin. We call that uh, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, and a combination of the two would be amazing. But I think the first step would be to reduce uh, the anxiety um, uh, because that's one of the major uh, fuels for OCD. Thank you so much, Dr. Adelotti. Really helpful. And for more information, you can go to lumind.com. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Up next, how your sex lives have changed in a pandemic. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath on this very, very unusual St. Valentine's Day. We are living through a pandemic, just in case you've been living under a rock. And COVID-19 has definitely had a negative impact on intimacy and sex because the pandemic has changed sex for many couples. First of all, it has changed how we interact with others, and that includes in the bedroom. There, I mean, the calls uh, from couples to me have increased exponentially in terms of low sexual desire, in terms of desire discrepancy, in terms of arguments, in terms of conflicts and lack of conflict resolution skills. This huge shift in sexual desire is probably related to a lack of novelty in the bedroom, in part because we are 24-7 with the one we love. And you know what? That can get a little bit boring. Some people have newly developed fantasies, and that means that there is a whole new meaning to solo and partnered sex. Many, many people are, are afraid 
uh, because of the pandemic, thinking that lives are never going to get back to normal. Many people are sad. They have missed people. They are lonely. They are living alone. This has led to digitization of sex. Uh, That's the buzzword for 2021. And many, many people, as I mentioned, are bored. Bored in the bedroom. Bored because it's the same old, same old. Because you can have it anytime you want it. And so why bother when there's Netflix? Many people, uh, which which has an addictive quality, quite frankly, after about 18 or 20 minutes, if you notice, you're, you're left hanging on only to stay for yet another episode. I've often said that Netflix has saved many marriages, and uh, I still believe it's helping many, many couples through the pandemic. Um, You know, this new normal is definitely reshaping people's sex lives, in part because there's so much stress associated with the pandemic. We have financial stress. We have sexual stress. We have the kids living at home stress, the ones we're homeschooling. And then there's the kids that have flown back to the coop because they maybe were living in other parts of the world and were sent home. And when you are stressed, there are chemical and hormonal fluctuations that will impact your sexual functioning. And so that can actually make it much more difficult for us to get in the mood for sex. Of course, we have so many people experiencing higher levels of anxiety and stress and PTSD. And it sends this message to our brains that we are in danger. And when we're in danger, the last thing you want to do is to go have sex from an evolutionary standpoint. So uh, the pandemic, as I mentioned, has forced a lot of couples to spend a lot of time together, oftentimes in small quarters as well. And that can impact people also. Many people have lost their jobs. And so there's just so much. A lot of people have gained weight and that can impact body image and that can have an effect, a negative impact in the bedroom as well. So that's kind of that big stress ball associated with the pandemic that has led to lower libidos amongst many couples, especially those in long-term relationships. And for those people who may have sought excitement outside of their marriage or outside of their relationship, that's limited too, because there's no getting together with anybody anymore unless you go online. And people are taking new sexual relationships online because the pandemic has also changed the way we engage in casual sex. Many people are experiencing this high level of anxiety because they are afraid that they're actually going to contract it from a sexual partner. And there was a recent study from the University of Melbourne in Australia, and that reported a 53% decline in sex during the shutdown compared with 2019. 31% of the participants that responded to the survey were less likely to report sex with a casual hookup during the pandemic. Hookups happened all the time before and now no longer. Um, But oftentimes now in this pandemic, people are taking their dating online. So they're actually getting to know each other a little bit better, which, you know, that can't be a bad thing. It's not hop into the sack immediately. But you know what? People can even digitize their sex lives, as I mentioned, their casual sex lives. And so um, you know that there's phone sex that occurs and there's also video sex. And so there's an increase in that as well. And in fact, OkCupid has experienced a 700 
100% increase in the number of users who attend online dates since last March. Um, you know, this is a, a whole new way that we are loving and that we are dating and that we are having affairs. Um, and I wonder just how much of this is going to be left over post-pandemic. You know, and during a pandemic, there is an upside as well. There are people tend to explore their fantasies a little bit more. And especially people who are single or people who live alone, they might experience higher rates of loneliness and they're more likely to explore new sexual fantasies. And that is according to the Kinsey Institute. 17% of participants have added at least one new sexual activity into their lives since the pandemic began. And some of those common sexual additions might be the use of a vibrator, sexting, sending nude photos, and also sharing sexual fantasies with partners as well. This pandemic is certainly life-changing, so it makes perfect sense that our sex lives are changing as well. And, and you know, we have to wonder just how much of it are we going to be incredibly comfortable with um, as opposed to, and, and how much are we going to want to keep this, uh, this way? How many, how many strategies are we uh, going to keep post-pandemic? We have no idea how long our sex lives will be affected by the pandemic and what newly formed sexual behaviors will persist. But anyway, I think it's a good idea to stay open and, um, and also tend to your sex life like you would a garden. And, uh, and so it, it takes kind of daily attention and also the right tools and adding a little bit of love and sunshine. I am Maureen McGrath and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Up next, we're going to be talking to a gentleman who is a former addict and would like to share his beautiful story of recovery. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program. Many, many people have loved somebody who has an addiction. An addiction or substance use disorder is a complex condition where there is uncontrolled use of a substance despite harmful consequences. People with substance use disorder have an intense focus on using a certain substance like alcohol or tobacco or illicit drugs to the point where the person's ability to function in day-to-day life becomes impaired. Joining me on the line is Guy Felicella. He is a peer clinical advisor for the BC Center of Substance Use. He is also a recovering addict, and he is going to share his story. Good evening, Guy. Hey, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. So addiction, when we think about addiction, we think about people perhaps on the downtown east side. We think about lower socioeconomic people. We think about nobody that I know. We think about not in my neighborhood. Uh, And we, there's a stigma. We judge. There's shame. There's so much rolled up into substance use. Tell me from your experience, what is addiction and, and who does it affect? Yeah, no, it's, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many things with different aspects of, of addiction that can run in a person's life. Um, 
mine was um, impacted by by childhood trauma. Um, so looking for not developing any coping mechanisms uh, as a child and looking for ways to cope. Um, so when I did find uh, substances at a very early age, um, you know, I they took away, they, they fulfilled something that was missing. Um, and that's when you're looking at things to cope with, you know, trauma, verbal abuse, physical abuse, uh, especially a person struggling with low self-esteem and self-hatred issues uh, at a very young age. When you start using these substances, you don't you don't understand uh, substance use disorder or an addiction. Um, you're using them just to numb. I was using them to numb. Not to say that I didn't use them for pleasure as well, but what started to happen uh, relatively quickly in my life is that I started to use more and more substances constantly and more uh, progressive substances that were harder and highly addictive. And then before I knew it, um, at a very young age, I developed a substance use disorder. And let's and, step, you know, I want to just uh, point something out cause we have spoken before this interview. Um, let's step it back. Your family was fairly well off. It wasn't, it wasn't a money issue. It wasn't that you're from a poor family, if you will. No, yeah, no, very well off, uh, middle-class family, uh, very nice neighborhood in Richmond, B.C., a suburb uh, of Vancouver, um, you know, uh, financially secure, uh, emotionally uh, void from uh, my parents. But, uh, and that's what, as a, as a young person, um, you, you need, you need that emotional connection, and, and it didn't exist in, in my family, so... And even if you look uh, at the data, oftentimes, you know, people's minds gravitate when they hear, you know, opioids or overdose or addict, Um, they gravitate to usually the the people that are homeless. But if you look at, um, you know, there's 35,000 people that are homeless every day in in Canada Um, and uh, over a lifetime, uh, you know, six million people at some point in their lives will develop a substance use disorder. So, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of people. So it's in the white pillared homes in in the suburbs, in other words, you also struggled with learning disabilities as a child. How do you think that impacted your self-esteem, uh, which may have contributed to substance use? Oh, it was terrible. I mean, I struggled in school, uh, oftentimes, you know, put in a cubicle, um, at the time when I went to school, too, you, you were able to be hit, so you'd get hit at school. I went to a private school, so I was getting hit there. And, um, you know, always called difficult, hard to manage, and hyper. Uh, nobody looked beyond that. And then when I started using substances, that's all that everybody said that the issue was, was that, uh, well, your problem is, is that you use drugs. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed later on in life um, with uh, ADHD and a mild comprehension disorder, uh, similar to dyslexia. I I remember that counselor telling me, um, and I just said to her, I said, oh my God, like I've always felt stupid my whole life um, and I'm not stupid. And she goes, no, you're you're actually very smart because you had to figure it out on your own without any help. Um, And I I just, I was just like so relieved that, you know, it wasn't what people always said it was. It wasn't the drugs. It was the, the root causes that led me to those drugs. Right. And was there substance use in your family as well? Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, not just 
substance use, but also addiction. Um, my dad uh, was uh, a gambler, and my mom struggled with alcohol. So when you have, uh, you know, also the genetic disposition of, of addiction running through your family as well, um, and the environment that I lived in as well, it made you really, um, really prone to, um, you know, and then childhood trauma on top of it. Um, I was just a prime candidate for somebody to uh, use substances and obviously had developed a substance use disorder because of it. Right. And the pandemic has certainly contributed to the highest number of overdose deaths we've seen in a long time. And why do you think that is? Well, I just, I don't, I, you know, if you look at even 2016, especially in British Columbia and across the country, um, you know, we've had years before the before the pandemic um, hit uh, to put something in place that would actually address the uh, poison drug supply that's been going across the country, but our lack of emergency in responding to that crisis. And then what we did have in place, really what COVID-19 did was just show how fragile in place the uh, the supports were for people who use drugs and, and, and sadly they're dying because of it. They certainly are. Um, and, and it's that loneliness factor as well um, that also has contributed to that. Um, so you've been uh, clean now, if you will, for five or six years, is it? Uh, eight years. Eight uh, years. Eight years, actually. Yeah, I actually call it freedom. Freedom. Not, uh, okay, you've been... Yeah, I just call it like freedom from uh, from a substance use disorder. Yes, so it's, it's eight years in March. Well, congratulations. That's tremendous. And may I ask you, um, there's so many, there's, there's so much confusion around rock bottom. And, and rock bottom is really that, you know, people think that it's, it's you know, that you're living on the downtown east side, which you did <laughs> live on the downtown east side. Um, or, you know, right. people lose their wives or their husbands or their uh, their homes. But what... Rock bottom is that time where it just gets so bad, you make that decision to change your life. When did you hit rock bottom, or what was that like for you? Is that even a true statement, a rock bottom? Is that a fallacy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, you know what I've noticed in, in, in my whole life is basically you, I got trapped in a revolving door of incarceration, parole violation, red zones. And, and once you get into that spin cycle, it's very hard to get out of. Mm-hmm. So there was no, there was no, um, there was no support. There was just basically, uh, you're being incarcerated because you're using drugs or doing crime to use drugs. So we're going to throw you in jail. And then after you finish your jail sentence, then you figure it out for yourself. So um, basically what I'd always received was incarceration. And when there's incarceration, there's no rehabilitation. Um, So nobody um, offered support for the substance use disorder. They just looked at it as like, this guy is just a criminal because he uses drugs, which is against the law, so throw him in jail. It wasn't until um, I was about uh, 40 that, uh, I mean, even judges were saying like, hey, like, I mean, like we just keep putting him in jail and he just keeps getting out. It's not working. It's, and at the later on in my life, uh, at around 40, people started to support me. Um, you know, uh, the diagnosis, um, started looking deeper. They stopped looking at the drugs and they started looking at like, why is he using the drugs? Let's try to figure that out. And once that started to happen, I started to get involved with some counseling. And then before I know, by the time I was 43, um, 
after my last overdose, I just I just knew I was either going to die in my addiction or I was going to die trying to get out. And, uh, you know, I went to uh, an outpatient program. Uh, and luckily for me, there was a trauma therapist there and started doing trauma therapy. And that really uh, gave me the ability to um, understand my relationship with the drugs, why I was using the drugs, and why I was actually burying the trauma uh, and not being able to deal with it or cope with it. And so once I was able to be in a safe place one-on-one with somebody that I trusted uh, and somebody that knew how to guide me out of that because it's very painful dealing with past traumas, um, I had the ability to actually, you know, uh, within that nine-month uh, period, I get off all substances altogether. And and your life has changed dramatically. I mean, you have a great job. You have a, a beautiful family now. What would you say to somebody out there who's worried about somebody who is uh, using drugs or somebody who they themselves are using drugs? What what message of hope do you have for them? Well, I think, you, you know, the, the, the best thing that I've always noticed in my life is that, um, you know, you have to meet people where they're at, not where you expect them to be. And when you can do that and support people and let them know that, that, you're, that you're there for them. Um, that was important in my life. I mean, people all often ask me, was it that last overdose that was the, the moment? Yeah, it was one moment, but of many moments. And many moments of people not judging me for using substances, just trying to work, work with me. Um, and then at 40, when, um, you, you know, so many people started to, to come and say, hey, listen, it's not the drugs. This guy's struggling um, with a bunch of issues. And once you know, for, for people who are struggling with it today, um, you, you know, have, uh, I'm sure that the, the best thing we can do is, is that I've learned is that uh, the stuff that I buried deep down in, in the pit of my uh, soul, um, when I was 43, I started talking about it. So have that, whether it's a harm reduction worker that you're working with, um, or anyone that you have the ability to trust and talk to, just start opening up a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, and, and let them know that you need some help. And accept that, and then for the person that's asking for the help um, or giving the help, support the person where they're at. Wonderful. Guy Felicella, I could talk to you all night long, but I got to let you go. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your freedom pathway. May it be a long and beautiful one. Thanks, Ronnie. Have a great night. You too. And happy Valentine's Day. All right. Thank you. Uh, So I want to thank all of my fabulous guests, my tech producer, of course, Andrew. And if you missed the show, you want to hear me say this again. Remember, the show can be heard as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You can go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com. Remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you have been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.